viewers and listeners, this is a weird situation. I am Zooming with my guest from home uh, due to some technical issues at the studio. You probably don't care, but I want you to talk to Lamar Giles so much today that I ran home from the studio where nothing was working and came to my house where everything is through the miracle of modern technology. So um, I'm gonna introduce you to Lamar, but my feeling is that if you've been watching this show, you know Lamar because here is his record on Book Stew. December, 2015, his book, Fake ID. March, 2016, his book, Endangered. May 2017, his book, Overturned. December 2018, his book, Spin. And February 2020, Not So Pure and Simple. So those are all the books we've discussed before. And now you've got a new one. Welcome, Lamar. Good to see you again, Eileen. So Lamar, this is different than your other books. And um, let's get into why you decided to take a veer into horror and dystopia? Well, people who read my YA may not recognize that I actually started in publishing, writing and selling horror stories. So 20 years ago, my first short story sale was a scary story. And most of the sales after that for a few years were scary stories. So this is actually me returning to what I originally set out to do because I grew up big Stephen King fan. I wanted to be Stephen King. Um, I actually used to think that was really the only way to be in the industry, like, because where I grew up, those were the books you could get, you know, you can always find a Stephen King book. So this is actually me coming back to my horror roots. Um, and I'm excited to finally get a chance to do one of these. So um, the plot is to me, and, and I think everyone who reads you knows that I think at first you're a plotter. Your plots are just incredible. And I don't know if you write that way and then fill in the characters later. And I'm not saying the characters are weak because they never are, but the plots are intricate, but not confusing. You can always follow them. And uh, you also write usually with a group of uh, teenagers and they are the center of the plot. And here, once again, you have done this. So um, I'm going to ask you to kick off um, our discussion about the getaway by reading the introduction. And I don't know if this is going to be in, um, in the, in the uh, printed version that's coming out on September 20th, or it was just in my advanced reader's copy, but I really liked it. And I think it, it gives the reader a good, uh, good look at what they're going to be reading and being afraid of. So why don't you read that for us? Oh, absolutely. And it, it won't be in the final hardcover version. So it's nice to get a chance to read it here. Oh, excellent. Dear reader, many years ago, I lived and worked at a vacation resort in Florida, a well-known place where mice aren't considered a problem and you'd swear there was magic in the air. My first day on property, I took a bus to the amusement park I'd spend the next five months helping maintain. My seatmate, a Midwest kid wearing a lanyard heavy with collectible pins of the various cartoon characters who were now technically our coworkers, leaned toward me and said, you know, no one ever dies here. He was referring to a debunked urban legend about the company striking a deal with local authorities to ensure anyone who met a grim fate 
was transported off property before receiving an official time of death. So not to be a downer to other vacationers. Because, you know, that's a reasonable non-ghoulish business decision. He explained this to me in detail and I was troubled, not because of the illogical things he was saying, but because he smiled the whole time. He was an obvious super fan totally on board with the idea that his favorite place in the world was manipulating death itself to maintain optics. I got off the bus with two questions firmly planted in my mind. One, is it possible to avoid that guy from now on? Two, what if he'd been telling the truth? That what if took me down the road to the place you're about to visit, where the aspirations of those in charge are way more chilling than maintaining their image where the ideas of scared, angry men create monsters. There you'll meet a super fan named Jay, who may not be enthusiastic about the gruesome urban legend surrounding his home and job, though he's willing to overlook many things for the sake of comfort and security, until he can't. With him, his crew, Seychelle the heiress, Zeke the skeptic, and Connie the glue. When the world outside the resort wall takes an apocalyptic turn, they'll be forced to welcome a new batch of guests. All rich, all cruel, all expecting five-star service. With a smile. Welcome to Karloff Country. Enjoy your stay. So, I, I mean, I think that's, that's a great summary, but it doesn't, it doesn't hit on the absolute creepiness and the collision of the funnest place on earth, as you called it, with outside realities and actually with, um, with, with a political bent in that you deal with, and I don't really remember this being an, an issue in any of your other books, um, the, the discrepancy in, in income and in life, lives of people in America. That very much, very, very much enters into this book. So had that been brewing for a while? I mean, I, I don't remember you really dealing with that much economic injustice previously. Well, to me, I think it's been really in our face in the real world over the last two years, which is the period in which I wrote this book. And I find that when I'm writing scarier stuff, I tend to write what worries me. Uh -huh. And, you know, and we've talked about this, Eileen, I, 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 during the pandemic, I had my first child. I have a daughter now. And so that's especially terrifying when you look out your window and see some of the things that are happening in our world um, politically, regardless of which side of the aisle you fall on, economically, wherever you are in the country, environmentally. The 24 hour news cycle does not give us a break lately. And there, those are things I wanted to touch on in this book because I think they affect us all. And you mentioned me all, sort of leaning towards a group of young heroes because I think they're going to have to be the ones to try to fix the mess we leave them. Isn't, isn't that, I mean, it's what, what, so my daughter's 35 and I think she, she would come through if she had to, but really it's your daughter so much more that the, that this is all going to fall on. And I just hope she finds a crew like Jay did, because I think each of the strengths and weaknesses of each of the four kids are really compelling. And you actually use all four of their voices, which I thought was a really great way to do it. 
how, um, what came, so what came first for you? And did you think about this pre-pandemic or was it definitely like a COVID book? Um, the idea came to me pre-pandemic because part of it's based on a story I read many years ago um, from a futurist humanist named Douglas Rushkoff, um, who told this story about being summoned essentially by five billionaires who essentially wanted to hear his theories on the best way to survive the apocalypse in comfort. Um, they wanted to know where the best place in the world would be to shield them from environmental change. They wanted to know how to best control their security forces. Um, and they floated ideas to him about locking up their food and putting shock collars on them. So I read that story probably back in 2018 before the pandemic. And if you, you've read the book so you can see where some of that plays. Uh, but the pandemic sort of gave me the inspiration to try to funnel some of my own anxieties into that very nice seed of an idea and also use my experiences working for a resort that I won't name <laughs> um, because that experience was not always awesome. And I've been thinking about that for 20 years. So it all seemed a good time to mix it together and get what we got. Well, I'm going to show you something that I had uh, plucked out, and it's that very author. This will probably show up backwards that you had that you had mentioned. Yes, and you can see what I wrote at the top, which is wealth and entitlement. Mm. Now, um, and I was planning to talk to you about it, but is was that fiction or nonfiction? I didn't get far enough to see. Um, the Douglas Rushkoff story. Yeah. Um, well, according to him, that's nonfiction. And actually, it's funny that you bring up that book because I was talking about an article on Twitter, maybe yesterday or the day before, that's an excerpt from that book. And Mr. Rushkoff actually reached out to me and congratulated me on my novel. Oh, um, wow, that's great. So, so that was a pretty neat full circle moment because I've been thinking about his story for a long time. And according to him, that's a real thing that actually happened. Um, so not, not it's, it's nonfiction. So um, the let's let's talk a little bit about the funnest place on earth. Of course, I love that you called it Karloff Country because um, you know I think you can see by how you feel about Stephen King, basically how everyone feels about Stephen King, by the Hunger Games, by the popularity of dystopian novels and horror, which is really like such a thing. So to combine them together makes a lot of sense. But of course, to put it in the setting of, uh, of a, not even just an amusement park, but an amusement world is, uh, is, is it makes for a fantastic setting. So um, what, so we know where that came from. How about the four kids? Um, there's certainly, you know, Seychelles is almost the most interesting one. And why, why don't we talk a little bit about each of the four protagonists? Sure, so Jay is our main in. He's the one we stick with the most. Jay had a harsh upbringing in his youth due to the environmental changes the, um, that he grew up with. This is near future. So it's not exactly 50 years from now. Um, and sometimes when I watch the news, it feels like it may be a year from now. But um, Jay grew up in tough situations and when his family was invited to come live and work at Karloff Country, he is the most grateful because he grew up scarce food, um, uncomfortable living environment. 
this place is a dream come true to him. And so when things start to go wrong, he's always the one looking for uh, an excuse to make it okay. Zeke, his best friend, also came from difficult circumstances, but he had a harsher outcome in the outside world. He lost his mom to a pandemic type situation. Um, and he does, he's not very trustworthy of anybody in power, but him and his father got the invite to come live in Karloff country. They accepted it because it was the best option, but they're constantly looking at conspiracy theories and trying, trying to analyze what might not be right about the situation. Connie is sort of the spark of light in their crew. Her dad is a five-star chef. He's sort of a local celebrity in Karloff country. He has the best restaurant. He makes the best food. And she's looking to follow in his footsteps. And that's sort of a big aspiration in a world where food is scarce. And there's Seychelle, the heiress, who is the biracial granddaughter of the richest man on the property, the founder of Karloff country. Um, and it's not a great life for her because Mr. Karloff is not happy that his granddaughter is biracial. Um, he's, he was angry at his daughter when she brought the baby home. And he's sort of seen her as almost like a, a pet that he has to raise reluctantly. Hmm. She knows that. And so she craves being around black children who, who don't hold the money situation over her head because she's the heir to billions and who treat her like a regular person, which isn't always the case when you're a Karloff. So um, they, all four of the protagonists are Black. They live in a section of Karloff country called Jubilee. Mm -hmm. Is, was that a deliberate a deliberate choice? And um, I'm, I'm like, I, I don't, why do you think it is that they, that black people were participating in Karloff country because the founder was such an incredible racist that I would think that he would have made it, another way to go would have been to make it like a white supremacy mm -hmm. paradise or something. Oh, well, it's a couple of reasons. For, um, but for one, it's not exclusively black people. So we just, those are the characters we stick with, but there's all sorts of people who aren't white that have a service capacity. And that's probably due to Mr. Karloff having had pleasant experiences in his youth, having servants of color. Um, he, his father was wealthy, he's wealthy. They always employed people of color to be maids and drivers and butlers. And so in his mind, that is the proper order of things. Um, the, the, those were always the good people in his mind, the, the, the good black people, the good whatever race. And he made a situation where we could get a bunch of those people to be in service capacities and they should be grateful that we let them in. And um, they weren't, none of them were really in management capacities except for the chef. Exactly, exactly. Um, and he, he's probably what Mr. Karloff would consider one of the exceptional ones. One of the good ones. Yeah, one of the good ones. Um, and the neighborhood they live in, the, the, the housing area, Jubilee, um, that's simply based on a lot of um, planned communities throughout the country. Um, okay. So celebration is another one of them. Yes, yes. I didn't say that. You said it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm scared. Exactly. I don't want to get you in trouble with the, no. the, the mouse powers that be yeah. at all. You know, I'm just, I'm just very careful how much I, I say, <laughs> but, but you are exactly right. And the truth is, 
Celebration, I don't think is even affiliated with that company anymore. I think it was um sold years ago. So I think we're okay. I think we're clear. <laughs> but but that's exactly the inspiration for that that because all of that was inside the property that I worked on. And I mean, you seem to have a, a lot of insider knowledge of that property um, that was very valuable in the novel because a lot of a lot of it deals with the actual physical plant and how remarkable and how separate it is, not only from real life, but from a post-apocalyptic world outside the park. I mean, you know all the entrances and exits and secret places. And um, I, so um, how much so, I didn't get a really great sense and maybe this was deliberate of everything that had happened in the United States prior to you starting off the story. What do you envision had happened? I know Jay was hungry a lot. So we know there were food shortages. And I know there was a mention of like uh, rising sea levels wiping out coastal areas. How did you see it? And and is it, and you really only deal with the East Coast and that area. So we don't really know what's going on in the rest of the country or the world. Yeah, um, what I saw there was for me, a logical extrapolation with a little bit of exaggeration of all the environmental things we're seeing right now, um, which sadly, it, that's terrifying. It's terrifying to think what could be, but the wildfires, the melting of the polar ice caps, the earthquakes and the floods. I see that getting worse. And when you and a big thing in the book is food scarcity. Uh, our what is the supply chain agriculture system is so incredibly delicate. We've seen what can happen when one ship blocks a canal. Mm. So what also could happen if there's ever some sort of disease that strikes the cattle? If there's ever some vast famine that strikes the crops? In Karloff country, those people have seen all of that. And the, the golden ticket, so to speak, to come live and work in Karloff country gives you some protection because they're trying to do all those things within the walls. And I said it the other day to someone, I'm like, the getaway is fiction, but it's not made up because that mm -hmm. sort of community plan is actually something that very rich people are working on in secret. You, you, don't, you may not know where the locations are, but I'm sure in Mr. Rushkoff's book, he discusses that even more. I'm gonna have to read that book. I thought um, the way that um, the help was dealt with as the novel moves along is, is really the one of the, I mean, even in, apart from the environmental horror, there's human horror too. And there are the depths to which uh, humans can sink mm -hmm. and uh, who, who gets, who's on the receiving end of that behavior. And I think in a way it was exaggerated, but in a way, like you're saying, it's not completely made up. Um, 
did you did were you concerned about maybe being too harsh or maybe it being too horrible or i mean but i mean this is actually horror dystopia so i guess you can't be afraid of putting in, in too much horror no I, I wasn't concerned because this is my ninth novel and it to me it's like it's one of those things where if this really rubs a reader the wrong way you know what not so pure and simple is there if you want a light fun read um if you want something for your younger kids the austin boys are there if you want a little tamer mystery that doesn't go this far fake id overturned endangered you know spin so i, I feel like my resume shows that I, I can create an experience that's suited for you if you can't handle this um but i hope you can't i hope a reader picks this up and can understand what what is happening in this book and not be turned off because i think we live in a time where we can't really afford to look away from the horrible stuff that's happening right outside the window well i mean i'm not in any this is really the first horror novel i'm not a big stephen i may maybe i read one or two stephen king's um novel that i've ever read and i was kind of girding myself for am i going to be able to stand this and it it was hard to take but it was so integrated into the plot and it was so sadly logical that these horrors would take place that it didn't it, it wasn't like, you know, uh, someone gets stabbed out of the blue at a six, sweet 16 party. I mean, it was all flowed from the premise, which is that, you know, we're destroying our own world and uh, there are people who are going to take advantage of it. I mean, and, and you know, and taking it back to Mr. Rushkoff's tale of meeting with the five billionaires who had all these questions, what happens to the servants in the getaway is essentially what these billionaires floated they might try to do to their armed security so you're talking about these people have hired navy seals some of the best trained action heroes in the world and they're considering doing what's done in the getaway to these guys that obviously would not work out well however uh servant population who's not trained in combat and weapons i mean i hate to say it this sort of subjugation could potentially work and people who are willing to do that to the deadliest warriors would certainly be willing to do it to people who just want to feed their family but they underestimated the brains mm -hmm. of of and you know the courage that that and i think that was that was very much on my mind the courage of the resistors and i thought you did that very well i mean they weren't you know they weren't navy seals but they were normal people who were able to react and also to care about the other people who were with them, which obviously the billionaires and their horrible uh, offspring were not capable of doing. And, and, and I think and without throughout human history, that's often the case, right? Uh, tyrants underestimate the people they think they can victimize. And that's when you get the rebellions, you get the people fighting back in the end as is right that's what should happen no one should be subjugated to someone just because they figured out a way to make a lot of money or they or they knew they were going to get fed they were going to feed people who really needed food and that was how they were going to tie them to them and you know the i think um in karloff country the assumption was we're treating you so well that 
you must give us all your energy, your strength, and mostly your loyalty. So I think that um, Mr. Karloff and his family were probably were particularly appalled by the fact that these people that he had treated so well would even consider not going along with his schemes. And certainly, I mean, and I, and I, I hate to think this, but if you've ever worked in a corporate environment, you've probably experienced something like that. The idea that you should be grateful because you're employed, even if you're being treated horribly. Um, I think that's something a lot of people could probably relate to. Yeah, and it's funny, especially since it's coming around now because uh, nobody wants to commute to work five days a week. And, uh, and the employers are like, well, you know, who's gonna be around for me to look at and, and, and keep an eye on if you guys are at home? Uh, my feeling is the next thing that's gonna be invented is spy cams on yeah. people who work from home. And, but in any case, one more question about the book and then our time's almost up. I did notice, and maybe I hope I'm right, that all four of the children or if all four of the teens in the book were only children. Is that right? That is correct. Is, was, that is, is that deliberate? I, it, it wasn't initially. I, initially, I think I, was, I gave Connie a sister, but I'll be honest with you, and this is, this is a character flaw. It was easier to not have siblings. Oh, I know. I understand that completely. Because, you know, the problem is like in that soap opera where they had someone had a sibling and they went upstairs and they yeah. never came down. Yeah, like yeah. Three later said, where'd, you, where'd your sister go? Five years yeah. later, someone says, yeah. hey, I was watching the soap opera. This character went up the stairs. It was a sister and they never came down. So I, I understand that completely. But I also think, you know, being the mother of an only child, um, when only when an only child doesn't have siblings, but they find their posse, it, it can be very, very much stronger. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it became a it, it became convenient for story. And I thought about that a lot, like, wow, they all are only children now. And I just like I said, in a different in a different situation, I maybe could have worked it out, but it just became too cumbersome to have them and and Connie's sister, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, and then, you know, you have to worry about what are they, are they gonna leave their sibling out of it? Mm -hmm. and, I mean, maybe you could have had one with a sibling conflict, but I think when editors look at books, they're always looking, sorry about that. They're You're always fine. looking for characters to cut. So if you had put in uh, an extra sister or a brother, that would have been something where they would have said, oh, you know, do you really need that character? And you probably would have ended up cutting them anyway, because there were a lot of moving parts and moving characters in the management of Karloff Country, and you needed to include them for plot purposes. Mm -hmm. So um, I agree that siblings would have been, um, even and even the parents, like you got to know them a bit but they weren't major characters. It was more how the kids were protective of their parents and cared about their parents. They all had, um, well, maybe with the exception of Zeke, they had very loving relationships with their parents. Yeah, yeah, that, that's well, true. And say Chell's mom, but I don't wanna to get too much into that and give it away. So my last question is, and I think so obviously you left, you left room for a sequel. I mean, it had a great ending and I, you know, it wasn't one of these endings where the action just stops and that's it. Um, 
you must be planning a sequel. I have some ideas because the way I see it is you could tell a story for every person that was in Carlisle country. And if you go beyond the walls, you could tell a story for every person that's dealing with, with what's actually happening outside the walls. So I have some loose ideas. This is always contingent on how the readers feel and what the publisher wants to do, right? Um, I can say at this time, there's no immediate plan for a sequel, though if the book is well received and the publisher's into it, I could keep telling stories in this world. Because really the world, because again, we don't know what happened outside of that, of that little area. We have a vague idea of what's going on in the country but uh, we, we are not sure. So, um, oops. So, oops, Lamar, did I lose you? I'm still here, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. I don't, well, let me bring, see if I can bring my screen up again. There we are. So sorry, uh, you're fine. listening. This is, this is Zoom from home. So uh, we are basically out of time, but I just wanted to tell you how much I enjoyed this book. I enjoy, all your books, but I think this is an interesting step for you because it almost, because I know a, a little bit about you, this is like almost like a wish fulfillment to be able to, to combine two things that you love very much, horror and dystopia, um, and to see it in, a, in such, a, such a riveting book. It was, and to, to let the political come into it too, I, re, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a political junkie, so I particularly enjoyed that. But I'm, I'm sure it's going to be very successful, and I'm, I hope they'll, I hope the characters will come back. But if they don't, what's next on your horizon? Now you're doing a graphic novel, aren't you, or a comic? Yeah, I wrote a graphic novel for DC Comics called Static Up All Night. Um, that'll be out June of next year. Um, script's done. We're just um, letting the artists do their thing. I'm getting to see pages come back and. They look amazing. So I'm really excited for people to see that because that's another swerve for me. Um, this is a more lighthearted comedic comic book with some characters that I really loved growing up. And um, I'm also writing another horror novel that I can't talk about just yet, um, but that'll be fun too. This will be a supernatural horror novel. So I get to I get to play in that sandbox a little. All right, well, um... Will you come back next year when the graphic novel is released? Because I have not had a graphic novel author yeah. yet. You know I'll do it. You, you know I'll come back. Even if we have to do a Skype from home in our pajamas, we'll do yeah. it again. <laughs> I would love to. I would love to. All right, Lamora, thanks so much for being with me today. As usual, I had a wonderful time. And um, viewers and listeners, it's the getaway. And uh, if you enjoy Stephen King, and if you are politically inclined, also, you're really going to enjoy it. Thanks again, Lamar. And Thank you. we'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye, Eileen. -bye. Bye,